0: Be absolutely certain that it's an area that you're interested in. I mean, the the Court of Protection is is so unusual in the sense that it has both the ability to have that human face of the law, primarily from a very human rights centred perspective, because ultimately you are representing and achieving an outcome for the most vulnerable members of society. So that is incredibly um, important and also rewarding as a barrister.
1: I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupilage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. Anyone who's read Bleak House by Charles Dickens will remember the hideous case that took place in the Chancery Division in the 19th century, John Dice and John Dice, a wills and trusts case. In this episode, we hear from Constance MacDonald QC about her 21st century Chancery practice focused on wills
2: and probate and are reassured to hear that things have moved on since Dickens' time. We then move to the Court of Protection and hear from Claire van Overdijk about this very unusual jurisdiction and the different style of lawyering found there.
1: Congratulations adieu to Constance Macdonald QC, who took silk this year and has been described as a master in her field. Constance has a traditional chancery practice, but what does that actually mean? Constance, welcome to the Pupillage podcast.
3: Can you tell our listeners what is a traditional chancery practice? Well, the main element of it is uh, disputes about wills and trusts, um, which are basically families usually fighting over money. I think that's the best way I can summarise it. The other side of chancery practice is usually described as commercial chancery. Um, which has obviously, from the name of it, more of a crossover with commercial law um, and which may involve issues of trust. But the traditional side of it tends to involve people as clients rather than corporate clients. So this is the area of law for people who've enjoyed the equity and trusts course that they might have done on a GDL or undergraduate degree? Definitely. (laughs) And in fact, usually people who come to us for pupillage will say that they were... Um, one of the reasons was because they enjoyed that subject. Can you give our listeners an
1: example of a sort of, maybe if there is such a thing, a typical problem that you'll be asked to advise on?
3: Yes. Well, a lot of the cases I do are disputes about the validity of wills, which is a growing area of practice, um, not least because the population is ageing and there are more and more people with dementia and therefore more people whose wills might be in question. Um, there are also an awful lot of trust disputes where beneficiaries of trusts may feel aggrieved because they don't get on with the trustees or they think the trustees have committed a breach of trust or are not proposing to split up the trust assets in a proper way and a um, thousand other reasons why they might have a dispute between the beneficiaries and the trustees. So, how did you choose your practice
1: area? Was it the case with you that you enjoyed equity and trusts, and and that's how you came to think
3: about a transfer practice? I did enjoy equity and trusts when I studied law, um, and but when I went into practice, one of the first cases I did was a big probate dispute. In other words, a, a case about the validity of a will involving about I don't know seventy or eighty witnesses. Uh, detailed evidence about this lady's life. And I, I just found it very interesting, very human. So I knew within maybe two months of starting practice that of all the areas of chancery law, um, probate and traditional chancery was the side I enjoyed most. And when I say the areas of chancery law, chancery law, in, in most lawyers' eyes, would include things like insolvency, company, property... Um, some small-scale commercial law, landlord and tenant law, so much more than just wills and trusts. That's really helpful, I think, for our
1: listeners and for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting because I I tend to think of chancery as being very serious and grown-up as an area of law, and I forget that it actually involves individuals, often bereaved individuals, who might be at a particularly vulnerable stage in their lives.
3: Yeah. Well, I think nowadays... Most chancery practitioners would specialise in one or more areas of chancery law. There are not that many people nowadays who would practice across the broad spectrum of chancery. Um, Things have just changed in that sense. But it certainly, from my point of view, involves people. Um, But of course, that's not necessarily the case. If one was doing, let's say, landlord and tenant law, one might have very, very big corporate clients So who are your clients then? Your clients will tend to be family members? Almost entirely. Occasionally I would act for a trust company. I also do professional negligence claims that are associated with traditional chancery cases. Let's say a a solicitor is accused of negligence in making a will. Um, I do act occasionally for solicitor's firms or their insurers. Um, so to that extent, I might have a corporate client occasionally, but 99% of the time, my clients are simply ordinary people.
2: And how much of your your sort of life is spent in court, and how much of it is spent at your desk advising?
3: Um, almost entirely at my desk, or around a conference table, um, or at mediations. We do um, an awful lot of mediations nowadays. Very, very, very few cases end up in a full-blown trial. I probably, on average, have one or two trials a year, but the I should think well over 90% of my cases settle at mediation, so I probably do um, about 10 mediations a year. Um, but there are quite a few uh, occasions when I need to go to court for directions hearings. Um, and, and nowadays as well, the court... Um, does a form of court-supervised settlement negotiation called a um, FDR, Financial Dispute Resolution, hearing, which is a very new thing in the Chancery Division, but quite effective. Tell us a bit about that. What does that involve?
1: Is that in, in a court? It's or in does a
3: courtroom it... in the Rolls Building with a judge who has got nothing else to do with the case, looking at the papers and forming a view on any um, particularly contentious issues of law, or expressing a view on what the outcome at trial might be, with a view to trying to bring the parties together to a settlement. Because sometimes in these cases, especially because they involve people, um, people become entrenched. Sometimes it's a matter of principle, um, and sometimes it can be very difficult to get them out of the trench that they've dug for themselves. So having a judge say what they think the outcome might be, can sometimes unlock a deal. So what sort of skills then do you think
1: people who are thinking about practice in this area, what sort of skills should they have?
3: Well, it goes without saying that anybody who wants to become a barrister has to be bright. I don't think that they have to be the most clever person in their class. Um, For me, I think... One of the other key attributes is just an um, ability to understand people, Um, not only to understand the client and what the client needs and what the client's driven by, but to try to understand the other side's motivation and um, drive. Because in my area of practice, in order to help the parties reach a settlement which is very often in fact what we're trying to do at the same time as litigating. Um, I think one needs to have that understanding of people. Um, I get quite depressed at the number of pupillage applicants that I've had who express an interest in this field and I mean applicants at the various chambers that I've been in who seem to think that all one needs is intelligence to do this job and may have wonderful academic credentials but simply don't know how to deal with people. And I think in this job to do well, you have to deal not only with your client, you have to deal with your opponent, you have to deal with their client to some extent, you have to deal with a judge, you have to be able to be flexible depending on the particular judge... And you have to deal with colleagues and clerks in chambers. So I think if you're somebody who can deal well with other people, then that will get you quite a long way down the track.
2: That's really interesting.
3: I mean, the impression I have always had
2: is that you have to have a serious brain to do this, this area of law. Um, is that simply a prerequisite or do you actually think that the, the brain is, comes, is secondary?
3: You have to have a good brain. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist. (laughs) Um, I think there are good barristers, and I would put myself in this category, who are bright but not necessarily exceptional in terms of intelligence. Um, I am not somebody who has a first on my CV. I got a two one at university. Um, I don't have a master's degree. I don't have a doctorate but I work hard and I enjoy my job. Um, So I think that that can certainly enable you to succeed as a barrister. I think one of the difficulties with pupillage applicants nowadays is that because there are so many applicants to chambers, um, quite often there is a sift at an initial stage based on academic credentials. So for that reason alone, it is important to have um, good marks (laughs) on a CV. I think it's one of the failings of the system, though, that there will be people who've got excellent qualities to be a barrister who will fall through the cracks at that stage, um, and it's something that we're all aware of. Yes. But it, without interviewing 150 people, which would just be impractical, it's a difficult problem to solve. Yeah.
2: Can Can we go back to your the lifestyle that your practice entails? Yeah. So you're not in court very often you have about two trials a year yeah does that mean the rest of the time that you're able to juggle a sort of work-life balance or does it mean that actually you're you're often working long hours late into the
3: night um I almost never work long hours late into the night Amazing. I'm very much a nine to six barrister I turn down work if I can't fit it into that time frame um I, I think in my earlier days I probably did do longer hours, but nowadays I have children, and they come first, and so work has to fit in around them rather than the other way around. So I'm fortunate enough to be able to uh, afford good childcare, and um, I. But I do make sure that I fit my work into a working day as much as possible. Sometimes it has to spill over, but I try not to make that happen I I think that doing this job and in my practice area perhaps in particular it's it's very easy to achieve a good work-life balance in fact. That's interesting why do you say that is it because you
1: are rigorous about saying no to things if it's not possible to fit them in regardless of whether this might be a a brilliant case that is going (laughs) to advance you professionally? (laughs)
3: Um, Partly that but mostly because we can plan and advance Um, I do not get, for example, briefs at the last minute to go to court um, at short notice to seek an injunction or I don't have to travel out of London very much. Um, So I can plan a long way in advance for the few times when I do have to go out of London or go abroad. And um, I think that makes it very compatible with a good work-life balance sounds absolutely glorious. (laughs) Um,
2: What are the other aspects of this particular practice area that you love?
3: Well, as I said earlier, it involves people. I think that is definitely the predominant reason why I enjoy it. Every case is different. Um, It's extraordinary, actually, even after nearly 20 years in practice, how every case is different. So it keeps me on my toes. Um, It keeps me interested. Um, I enjoy simply the human element of um, and the face-to-face element of dealing with clients and trying to help them solve their problems. And as I also said earlier, because there is so much um, mediation and other forms of um, settlement that happen, in fact, almost always we help clients to settle their cases without going um, all the way to trial, and that's very satisfying. Uh, I want to ask you: Do you think it's necessary for
1: people who want to have a traditional chancery practice to get some additional qualifications beyond the GDL or law degree? Do they need a postgraduate degree, or or is that not necessary?
3: Well, it it, it it's. I don't think it's necessary. Um, as I said earlier, it it can help simply to get through the paper sifting exercise that a lot of chambers do as part of the pupillage process to have good academic credentials. Uh, I think it's a sad fact that that is often necessary to get to interview stage. Um, But on the other hand, I think if somebody doesn't have postgraduate qualifications but has otherwise um, a a good application and has demonstrated a, a real interest or indeed a passion for doing this area of law, then that can and should be enough on its own. One thing I encourage many pupils to ask, um,
2: and I think we're generally all too shy and polite to inquire about our earnings. What sort of level of earnings can someone expect from a chancery practice, particularly in the first few years?
3: Well, it will obviously depend set by set. Um, at the top sets, junior tenants quite often have guaranteed earnings for at least the first year of, I mean, a, a six figure sum, a low. Uh, something beginning with a one, um, maybe, let's say, 110000 a 120000 But, I mean, otherwise, good chancery barristers in the first few years can be earning well above that. Um, in good chambers where the juniors are often led a lot in the first few years, you know, if a junior does end up being led in a big case, especially a chancery commercial case... Um, you know they can earn very large sums indeed but even even in let's say medium ranking sets I think juniors can expect to earn sixty, seventy, eighty thousand pounds a year um, I mean one can normally tell I suppose from the pupillage awards that are being offered um, what the earning expectations are likely to be yes. in the first few years thank you ever so much absolute pleasure thank you thanks
1: Van Overdijk was called to the bar in 2003 and is a tenant at Outer Temple Chambers. Her practice covers a range of areas, including public law, where she does community care, health care and ordinary residence disputes. Her private client practice is concerned with contentious probate and administration disputes. But her other main area is mental capacity. She is an editor of the Court of Protection Practice and secretary of the Court of Protection Barristers Association and it's court protection work that we would like to talk to her about today. Very big welcome, Claire. Thank you. Claire, tell us how you got interested in court protection and how you began to develop your practice in this area of work.
0: So timing was on my side because of the, um, the introduction of the Mental Capacity Act of 2005, which came into force um, two years later in 2007. Um, essentially, um, my calling to the bar left me a few years maybe about four years to sort of try different practice areas mostly common law um, practice and then with the advent of the Men's Capacity Act it meant that there was a new area or not new area of law but an area of law that was now sort of statute based and much clearer sort of jurisdiction for barristers to focus on as a specialty Um, and from there on in um, I started to just start working in that area. And I found that my practice developed alongside the law as it went along.
1: So for those of our listeners who may not have heard of the Court of Protection, as I certainly hadn't when I was a student, can you explain what it is and what sort of disputes it is concerned with?
0: So the Court of Protection is concerned with decision making on behalf of people who have an impairment in the mind uh, or the functioning of the brain which means that they can't make those decisions themselves so it could range from um, anybody um, over the age of of uh, 18 uh, say for a very small exception which I won't go into right now um, who has a health and welfare issue that needs to be decided could be, for example, to do with where they should live uh, or what medical treatment they should have. Or it could be something in relation to their property and affairs, so a decision about their finances or um, making a will on their behalf. Essentially, any decision that comes into their daily life that requires um, uh, the court to to intervene.
1: So is it right to describe that sort of area of work as a dispute or not?
0: No, it is not a... um, adversarial um, system or jurisdiction, I should say. It is an inquisitorial jurisdiction. So the court will essentially step into the shoes of the person who can't make the decision themselves and make it on their behalf, having regard to a number of factors, but mostly what would be in their best interests. So the court doesn't really um, appreciate a very litigious style of advocacy. It's really all about investigating the issue on behalf of the person who needs that decision to be made and to enable um, an outcome that is in their best interests. So do you feel that
1: your practice in this area is different in some important ways from some of your other areas such as your public law practice?
0: Um, Yes so uh, mostly the parties working together towards a common goal which is to achieve what is best for that person as opposed to necessarily an outcome that means more money for one person than the other or a victory, so to speak. You never walk out of a court of protection case feeling that there's been a single concrete victory that's been achieved, save for the fact that everybody has um, reached a conclusion which has, by virtue of the court's decision, been made for that person.
2: And are there cases that all parties agree on what should happen and you nonetheless have to go to the
0: court to get the, that course of action approved? Or do court protection cases settle? It depends on the decision that needs to be made. Um, so in the health and welfare context, or anything concerning the, the person as in their residence, their care, their medical treatment, etc., um, the, the court would expect for professionals working together either from a medical perspective or social care perspective working together with a family and anybody who has an interest in that person's welfare to come to a decision themselves using the mental capacity act as a tool so looking at what's required and essentially having a best interest decision made collaboratively speaking if that's not possible if there's a disagreement then the court should make a decision Um, Also, when it comes to matters concerning property and affairs, which is more technical and more um, to do with um, private client related issues, those are usually um, dealt with either by a court decision where it has to be done that way mostly because no one else has the authority to do that. Even a deputy might not have the authority to do that. A deputy is somebody who was appointed specifically to make decisions. So it's quite unusual that the court must make a decision, but um, sometimes it's the only avenue, yes.
2: And so you've described the two separate branches then of the Court of Protection work, the care side and the property side. Mm. Are there any others that I've, I've missed?
0: Well, there's the medical treatment side, um, which falls under care. But I suppose, looking at it strictly speaking, issues to do with residence and, say, contact disputes, or to do with, um, for example, um, even to take somebody out of the jurisdiction for a holiday, for example. I think that involves their daily life, would be dealt with through community care law I suppose you could say ultimately it's the involvement of public services into that and feeding into the family and how that all works together um, from a family perspective Um, but then you can also have the medical treatment side which is much more health-based and so you have different public bodies involved in that NHS trusts CCGs etc and it's possible also in those circumstances where a serious medical treatment decision needs to be made such as um, withholding life sustaining treatment etc that uh, the court of protection has to be Become involved because medical practitioners and family members can't agree as to end-of-life decisions. Who are your clients then? Can you tell our listeners? So a very broad base of clients. I represent anybody essentially who has a dispute in the court of protection who needs my my assistance is no priority. Um, I find that a lot of the work that I do um, tends to come from mitigation um, friends in particular to represent who's the person who lacks capacity and that can be um, either the official solicitor who is the... um, It's a quasi-governmental organisation that essentially acts as um, the relevant person's litigation friend or it can be a family member. But I also act for deputies who are appointed um, by the Court of Protection to make decisions on behalf of the protected person, Um, the public guardian, um, family members um, and... Yeah, pretty much the whole scope of uh, client base. You mentioned deputies. Who generally sits as the judge in the Court of Protection? So the judges of the Court of Protection are um, have to be specifically um, authorised to sit in that capacity. They can be district judges, they can be circuit judges, and uh, all members of the um, High Court um, are entitled to sit as Court of Protection judges as well. Um The difference with with deputies is that deputies are appointed by the Court of Protection to make decisions on behalf of persons where the court feels that it's not necessary for them to do so. So a deputy could be a layperson, Uh, it could be a family member, Um, it could be a professional, an accountant or a solicitor, for example, Um, or it could be uh, another professional who's on a specific list of approved people, which is held by the Public Guardian, Office of the Public Guardian, which is a statutory body that's responsible for overseeing the role of deputies in in this jurisdiction. So there's quite a variety of people who can make that decision. And the decision as to who it should be, um, the identity of that person will be dependent on the decision that they have to make. So you can have deputies for health and welfare matters on the one hand, or you can have deputies for property and affairs matters, because they're seen as two quite different distinct areas
1: whereabouts does the court of protection sit? Are they in con- county courts around the country or how how does that work?
0: The court of protection can sit anywhere. It can sit next to a hospital bed, it can sit in a family member's living room, it can sit in a care home, it can sit in a courtroom, it depends on the judge and the judge's authority to decide on the matter. Does that mean
1: when you go to court, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going, as we might think, To a
0: a building with a lion and a unicorn shield hanging up outside it. Well, invariably it does when it comes to hearings because that involves lawyers. It involves, uh, as you would normally expect, to be a case. But where the court of protection happens behind the scenes, I think it's important to appreciate. Is that judges will frequently visit um, the protected party where they can't come to court themselves to ascertain um, a better understanding of them as a person, rather than reading about them on paper, rather than reading intense note from somebody who's visited them to give them an appreciation who they are the judge particularly in sensitive decisions concerning their welfare will um, go to see them him or herself um, and take a view But any judicial determination so to speak anything that involves analysis of evidence and hearing of submissions will be dealt with in a courtroom in terms of your own practice then how much of it is in
1: court and how much would be advisory paperwork conferences that sort of thing
0: Uh, That completely depends on the week. Uh, It's very unpredictable. um, No matter how much one tries to plan... It never quite works that way. But having said that, um, the the nature of the work depends on the type of areas you're working in. So with health and welfare matters, they tend to be quite similar to public law cases, which involves a lot of advocacy and a lot of last minute deadlines and a lot of flexibility on on my behalf. But for the property and affairs matters, they tend to be much more advisory because actually uh, up to 80 to 90 percent of the court's time is actually spent on health and welfare matters. Most property and affairs matters tend to be resolved um, without dispute and simply on the papers by the court. And so the council's involvement tends to be at the advisory stage to get the paperwork ready, to obviously then present it to the court in the hope and anticipation that it's simply dealt with without the need for a hearing.
2: We talked at the beginning about your other practice areas. Is cop work something that people do as a freestanding practice or is it something that you tend to practice alongside other areas?
0: it tends to be the latter um, so it tends to be something that will complement your other practice areas um, only because the the court of protection as i indicated before is it's, it's it, it is a statutory jurisdiction which means that you know it is freestanding in terms of the, the 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 framework but the issues that come into it tend to originate from other areas of law. So like I said before, care, um, health and welfare matters tend to originate from community care law and social services intervention, etc. and also from a medical perspective, from the involvement of um, NHS trusts and CCGs. So you have to have an understanding of how that, how that works from a public law perspective. And also from a private client side, if you want to do that as a mainstay of your area of practice, then you need to have a fundamental understanding of chancery um, law, traditional chancery law, which is private client law, to do with wills, trusts, estates, um, and anything to do with essentially um, individual wealth management. So uh, the way that my practice has developed is that I individually had a public law practice and a private client practice. And the one unusually, I suppose you'd say, not normally would they sort of uh, overlap. The one thing that does allow them to overlap quite nicely is mental capacity law. So which of the The practice
2: areas that intersect most comfortably with a COP practice, I mean, it sounds from what you're saying, like you could get that way through a chancery practice, but also through a healthcare practice, so doing personal injury or doing clinical negligence, that sort of work, is that right? Yes, you
3: could,
0: yeah. So if you have public law as your focus then you could quite nicely have a public law practice and a court of protection practice alongside each other, and a lot of people do that very successfully. Um, Equally, um, if you have a medical negligence, um, particularly medical negligence or personal injury practice, there is always at the end of a case, particularly concerning somebody who lacks capacity, the question of what should happen to those funds and who should manage it on their behalf. Um, So you could also combine those two. Um, And then in a chancery-based practice, um, you would... be able to deal with the property and affairs side of of, of things. And there is still quite a a divide, I think, in the bar in terms of the health and welfare work going mostly to public law-based chambers and the property and affairs work going mostly to chancery-based chambers. Um, And something I've been quite active in trying to achieve is to sort of forge a bridge between the two and provide a service that's really deals with both, um, with expertise in both areas.
2: So, for those listeners thinking that this sounds like an interesting area of practice, what work experience would you recommend that they try to
0: undertake? So, um, one of the things that is would be really uh, insightful, I think, is to either volunteer or perhaps even work for uh, advocacy organisations. Um, when I say advocacy organisations, those organisations who are either linked to a local authority or social services or independent entirely, um, who assist people lacking capacity to have a voice. Um, that could be in any formal context in in court proceedings, or it can be just generally speaking when it comes to decision-making in a community. Um, so to really assist them, uh, the people who need it the most, to, to, to enable them to have that. Um, there is the obvious route of obviously ensuring that you shadow individuals who do that sort of work, many pupilages as you would do in any other, other area of law, but also um, to reach out to judges of the Court of Protection to, to see if they're amenable to um, um, sitting with them, just to see actually how it works. Because one of the difficult things about the job of a court of protection judge is essentially to um, to really sit in the shoes of this person to make those decisions, which can be a huge challenge sometimes, especially in a formal setting of the court. And uh, they tend to and have to be much more human about their job than judges and other jurisdictions have to be uh, or are, for that matter. So it can be quite insightful to see how the system works through through those eyes.
2: So I'm just thinking practically if you are. Keen to do that. Is is the best thing to do to be in touch with your in about marshalling and say I'm particularly interested in court of protection. Yes, absolutely. Is there a judge you can help?
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't know if there's a formal mechanism to do that. Um I mean I've been in plenty of hearings on the COP when there have been people marshalling with them, so I know that it happens frequently. Um but I think that that would be a very way a good way forward. Not it's obviously good to put on the C V, but I think as I said before, it does give a very different insight into the role of the of the court and how it works.
1: Thinking about other barristers, other court of protection barristers who you admire, what is it about them that you think makes them particularly good at their job?
0: When you're representing somebody who lacks capacity, um, to really have a, I would probably call it a sixth sense, to sort of figure out what it is that would be best for them, because no one's giving you specific instructions as to what you should be saying in court. You have to essentially use um, your better judgment independently to put forward a case on behalf of somebody who can't do it themselves. And that can sometimes involve a lot of um, internal reflection on certain issues that you probably might not agree with yourself or, or you might think that they haven't, you haven't come across a situation in your life really to sort of be able to sort of have that emotional maturity and judgment to, to, to advance a case uh, from that perspective. So it, it does take a lot of uh, insight and empathy and stamina.
1: Thank you very much for agreeing to come and talk to
0: us. No worries. It's a pleasure. That was so...
1: Thank you for listening to the Pupilage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to
2: you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Doppirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode.